If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to hold it up with me right now and repeat these words with me. This is God's Word. I believe what it says is true. It teaches me how to know God and how to live for God. It has the power to change my life. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will be on the screen. I think that we would all agree that our world is in a mess. We have extremists and terrorists who are running over civilians, setting off bombs, beheading people. We have lunatics and madmen wounding and killing hundreds of people at concerts and and even in churches. We have athletes, Hollywood celebrities, and politicians accused of, of sexually molesting women. We have riots and protests in the streets all around the world. And from what we hear in the news, it seems like we are more divided racially, socially, and politically than we've ever been in history. And that doesn't even address the natural disasters that, that seem at least to be escalating each and every year. Almost weekly, it seems that we hear about another earthquake, another tornado, or another storm that has wreaked havoc somewhere around the world. But then we drive around and we see the Christmas lights. We hear the Christmas music. And we remember the Christmas story, and all of a sudden, we seem to think that there's still hope. And, and that's what Christmas does. It gives us hope in the midst of this chaos that we call life. It lets us know that there is an answer to the pain and the suffering in the world. It reminds us that ultimately light is going to prevail against the darkness. And one day, one day, Everything that is wrong in the world is going to be made right. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at a day when God promised that everything that is wrong is going to be made right. Now we are in our second stop on our Christmas road trip. And, and last week as we began this road trip, we discovered that Christmas was planned before creation. In other words, before there was time itself, God already put Christmas on his calendar. Before God created man and man ever sinned, God had provided a way for you and I to be forgiven. God had provided a way for you and I to be redeemed. But this morning, as we go back to the place where everything went south, I want us to discover that even though we rebelled against God, even though the first man, the first woman, messed everything up, God gave us a promise. A promise that, that He would right every wrong. A promise that everything that is wrong in our lives, a promise that everything that is wrong in creation would be restored. And as we look at this passage, there are three truths that I want us to see. The first one is this. I want us to look at the rebellion that got us into this mess in the first place. Because the mess that we see today 
All of the riots, all of the protests, all of the natural disasters, all of the extremeness and the, the madmen and all of these things, it can all be traced back to this very first rebellion. Now we read about this in, in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Notice what, what God's Word says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he, the serpent, asked the woman, Did God really say you must not, not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that, that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and and he ate it too. Now if you're familiar with the creation story, you know that everything God created was good. Everything that God created was perfect. And when God got to mankind, the Bible tells us that God created man in his own image, in his own likeness. He made man like himself. God made us. God made you and I to be a part of his forever family. And this first man and this first woman that, that God created lived in a paradise. They enjoyed a, a perfect relationship with God. They enjoyed a perfect relationship with each other. And they got to enjoy a perfect creation. That's how God desired it to be. That's how God intended for it to be forever. And in the midst of this garden paradise, God gave that first man and that first woman one command. God said, you cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Now, now, sometimes we get caught up in why God gave this command. And to be honest with you, we shouldn't concern ourselves with why God gave this command. That's not what we should concern ourselves with. Because the truth of the matter is, God gave them access to everything else in creation. God simply said, there's only one thing that I'm asking you not to do. And that's to eat fruit from this one particular tree. And that's where Genesis chapter 3 begins. Then as we start reading this, this chapter, it's like we're reading a story from a fairy tale. I mean, come on. A snake speaking to a woman. I mean, that's kind of like a talking donkey, isn't it? I mean, that, that just doesn't make sense to us. But you need to remember, you need to understand that this was before the fall. And, and Adam and Eve were trying to discover this new world. And what you need to understand is, is this was no ordinary serpent. This was no ordinary snake. This snake, we are told in God's Word, was inhabited by Satan himself, the angel who rebelled against God. We are told several times in Scripture that Satan was this serpent of old. Now you need to understand that Satan has one aim. Satan has one goal in mind. And his one aim, one goal is 
Your destruction, my destruction, that's what Satan desires. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy me. Jesus said it this way. He said the thief, Satan, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And one of Satan's main weapons in his arsenal to destroy us is deception. You see, if Satan can get us to believe a lie rather than the truth that comes from God, then he is on track to destroying us. And so that's what Satan does. Satan begins by getting Adam and Eve to doubt God's word. The first question ever recorded in the Bible is right here. Satan asks the question, did God really say? And understand, that's where the slippery slope of sin begins. When we begin to question God's word rather than simply trust God's word, we are in trouble. Someone said it this way. They said, never put a question mark where God puts a period. Satan used that, that one question as a broom to literally sweep Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. That one question that Adam and Eve listened to led to their downfall. Understand, when you begin to doubt God's word, you're in trouble. But not only did Satan get them to doubt God's word, as we read this story, we discover that Satan distorted God's word. If your Bible is open, did you, did you pick up on that? Notice what it says. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? You see, Satan wants us to believe that God says things that, that God doesn't say. Satan wants to put restrictions on us that God doesn't put on us. And that's what some people do. They believe that God has told us we can't do some things when God's never told us that we can't do those things. There are other people out there that, that believe that, that God has told us we can do things that we can't do. You see, Satan wants to distort God's word. He wants us to believe that God has said things that God has never really said. For instance, God never said money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. God never said God helps those who help themselves. God never said that. And God never said cleanliness is next to godliness. Now listen, take a shower, brush your teeth, use deodorant, Hygiene is a good thing, but, but God never said that. We need to be careful because the enemy is going to always try to distort what God says by adding to or taking away from God's Word. And so Satan, this serpent of old, got Eve to doubt God's Word. Satan distorted God's Word. And then Satan denied God's Word. He tells Eve, you won't die You'll become like God. God's lied to you. And that's all it took. Eve saw that the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted to be wise. And so she took some of the fruit. She ate it. She disobeyed God. And Adam, being Adam, took some of the fruit with her and ate it. Now why did they do that? 
I mean, why did Adam and Eve disobey their creator? Why did they rebel against their creator? Well, it's simple. They believed a lie rather than believing the truth. They believed their enemy rather than believing their creator. Satan said to them, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. I mean, don't you want to be your own God? Don't you want to make your own decisions? Don't you want to decide what's right? Don't you want to decide what's wrong? I mean, who of us wants someone else telling us what to do? I mean, none of us want that. We want to be our own boss. We want to be our own God. And so Adam and Eve believed the lie and they sinned against God. That's why you never listen to the devil. Hear me. That's why you never get in a conversation with the devil. There are people here this morning who are divorced because you listen to the devil. There are people who are in jail because they listen to the devil. There are people who are dying because they listen to the devil. And there are people who are in hell because they listen to the devil. A lady went out shopping one day and she came home and she had a bag and her husband met her at the door and said, what did you buy? And she said, I bought this dress. And her, her husband being the husband said, well, how much did it cost? And she kind of sheepishly said, $500. He said, $500? Why did you buy a dress for $500? She said, the devil made me do it. And her husband looked her right in the eyes and said, why didn't you say, get thee behind me, Satan? And she looked at her husband and said, I did. But he said, it looks good back there too. <laughs> Never, ever get in a conversation with the devil. Every problem in the world is the result of that conversation with the devil that led to the first rebellion. And so the rebellion. But the second thing I want us to see in this passage is this, and that is the results that came because of the rebellion. What happened to creation because of this initial rebellion? Look at verse 7 and following. It says, at that moment their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And I want us to skip the rest of it. We'll talk about it, but I want us to skip on down to about verse 23. And it says, So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, don't miss this in verse 7. It says, immediately their eyes were opened, and they felt shame. They felt guilt. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, the moment Adam and Eve rebelled, the moment Adam and Eve ate that fruit, something inside of them changed can you imagine that sensation for the very first time I mean they were created innocent 
They were created perfect. They were created free of sin. And they sinned. And that sin brought shame. The Bible says their innocence were gone. Their eyes were open. God promised them that the moment they ate that fruit, they would die. And they did. The moment they ate that fruit, something inside of them died. Their innocence was gone. So what did they do? Well, they do what we do. They covered up. You see, the natural reaction to our sin and our rebellion is to cover up, to hide it so that we can forget it. We, we want to act like it, it never happened. And, and so we cover it up. And then God showed up. And what did they do? They hid themselves from God. Now you need to understand before the rebellion, they walked with God in the garden. Before the rebellion, they loved these conversations with God. But now, after the rebellion, what did they do? They didn't want to be around God. They feared God, so they hid from God. Listen, sin always has, and it always will drive a wedge between us and God. Their relationship with God was changed because of their rebellion. But understand, not only did their rebellion affect their relationship with God, their rebellion affected their relationship with each other. If you read on down in this passage, it says that, that when God confronted Adam with his sin, you know what Adam did? He, he said, well, it's because of this woman you gave me. I mean, if you would have given me a better woman, this would have never happened. It all started with this woman. And so instead of manning up, what did Adam do? He began to blame Eve. And then in verse 16, if your Bible is open, this is what God says to Eve. He says, because of your sin, you will try to control your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, what this is saying is, you're going to be a controlling woman and your husband is going to be a domineering jerk. Anyone relate? Not you. No, I'm talking about, do you know anybody like that? Now's not the time to hit your husband on the leg. Now's not the time to give that glaring look at your wife. But you need to understand that your husband, your wife, isn't the problem. You are. And they are. Because of sin, because of our rebellion, our relationship with one another has been affected, and it will be affected. There are no perfect spouses. There are no perfect marriages. There never has been, and there never will be. And then it says, because of your rebellion, your work will be difficult. God says, all your life you will struggle to scratch out a living. Have you ever wondered why so many people today hate their job? I mean, it's not because work is bad. I mean, th this is what we do today. We work hard for 20, 30, 40 years, however long we have to, so we can get to that point where we can retire so that we can enjoy life. And yet the Bible makes it clear that God created us to work. 
I mean, before sin, God gave Adam a job to do. It was only after sin, only after the rebellion, that work became a chore. I mean, why are Mondays the terriblest day of the week? It's because of the fall. I mean, why is it that when the alarm clock goes off on Monday, we want to shoot it with the shotgun? It's because of the fall. That's why. And then it tells us that the fall not only affected human beings, the fall affected all of creation. God says the snake will crawl. You think about that. I mean, obviously before the fall, the snake could walk. That's kind of creepy, isn't it? Because of the fall, the, the snake will crawl, the, cur- the ground will be cursed, there will be thorns and there will be thistles. Think about it. Snakes could walk before the fall. Roses were roses without thorns before the fall. The fall affected every part of creation. I've had the privilege of, of seeing some beautiful sights all over the world. But the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen, the most amazing waterfront that you've ever experienced, the, the, the most colorful flower that your eyes have ever beheld has been tainted by sin. We are seeing a creation that has been corrupted by sin. And then it says our rebellion ultimately leads to our death. We will return to dust. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, something inside of them died. Their their innocence died. But we are also told when they died or sinned, their bodies began to die. To the point that for them, hundreds of years later... They finally breathed their last breath, their bodies gave up, and their bodies returned to the dust. You see, our rebellion has affected every area of creation. Every bad thing that that man does is because of our rebellion. Every bad thing that happens in creation, in nature, is because of our rebellion. Everything. But... In spite of our rebellion, God gives us a promise. And the promise is of the Redeemer. Now this blows my mind. Because what Scripture says next is that the moment of our deepest rebellion, at the moment of our deepest rebellion, God doesn't destroy us. God continues to love us and He desires to restore us. Listen to what it says in verse 15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike or bruise his heel. Now that blows my mind. From the moment of our rebellion, God promises redemption. This verse gives us the very first promise in Scripture and it teaches us three things. First of all, it teaches us about a conflict, a, a conflict between a woman and a serpent, and a conflict between her offspring and the offspring of the serpent. Now, on the surface, this looks like 
for all eternity, human beings are going to have this, this hate relationship with serpents, snakes. And I, for one, can say amen to that. I mean, I know there are a few strange people, Satan-possessed people, like snakes. People that like snakes, something's wrong with them. My son, Jonathan, hates snakes, terrified of snakes. I mean, if you want to get him, get a big rubber snake. Wrap it up in a belt box or something like that. Put a good wrapping on it and put a bow on it and give it to him and let him open it up. On second thought, don't. He may die or he may shoot you. I don't know. But this isn't talking about how you and I despise, hate snakes. It's not talking about that. It's talking about this conflict between mankind and the one who inhabited the snake, the serpent of old that it talks about in Revelation. And it's saying that from Eve on until the end of mankind, there's going to be this conflict that is going on between mankind and the enemy, Satan, the devil. And he is going to be trying to destroy us and kill us and take us into captivity. But then again, it also tells a story about the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And what, what in the world is, is that talking about? Well, that is telling us about a, a conception that's going to take place that has only taken place one time in, in all of human history. That word offspring, the Hebrew word literally is seed. And it is used over 300 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. But every time, except this time, it is used in the masculine. It is used to describe the seed of the man. This time... It's used in the feminine. It's used to describe the seed of the woman. Now technically, medically, the woman doesn't have a seed. The man has a seed, the woman has an egg, and when the egg and the seed come together, a conception occurs. But the man brings the seed. The woman has the egg. And yet, and yet here in Genesis 3, it talks about this, this thing that's medically impossible. The seed of the woman. What in the world? What is he saying? Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, we're given the answer. In Isaiah 7, 14, God says this, I will give you a sign. The virgin is going to conceive. She will bear a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, a virgin without the seed of man is going to get pregnant, and she is going to give birth to a son, and this son is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. In Genesis 3.15, we're told about this one-of-a-kind birth that delivers this one-of-a-kind baby that gives us our only begotten Savior. And so we see this conflict between, between mankind and 
between Satan. And we see this conflict between Eve's seed, Jesus, and Satan. We see this conception. This virgin is going to conceive and give a son, and, and he is going to be the God-man. But then finally, we see this bruising. It says that the serpent, he says to the serpent in verse 15, he, the offspring of Eve, will crush your head and you will strike. You will bruise his heel. Now, we know when Jesus' heel was bruised, when Jesus' heel was struck, was on the cross. I imagine when Jesus was hanging on that cross and they put that nail in his heels, he thought about this passage in Genesis 3.15. He will bruise your heel. I imagine when Jesus was hanging on that cross, he thought about that passage in Isaiah 53.5 where it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I'm sure that was going through Jesus' mind when he was on that cross because that's when the serpent bruised Jesus' heel. But when did Jesus crush his head? Well, the crushing literally took place three days later. When Jesus came out of the grave, defeating sin and death. And when Jesus came out of that grave, defeating sin, defeating death, sin has been defeated for us. The penalty of sin has been taken care of the power of sin has been destroyed in our life. Listen, because Jesus came out of the grave, the Satan, Satan's power, Satan's control over your life has been crushed. And yet, I think we would all agree as we look around the world that it still looks like Satan is pretty active, doesn't it? And so what's going on? Well, you see, this crushing began at the resurrection. But the crushing will not be culminated until Jesus' second coming. When Jesus makes everything new. You see, when Jesus comes back again, the Bible says all things will be made new. Not only will our sins be forgiven, not only will... A, a relationship with God be restored that has only been known by two people, Adam and Eve, our relationships with one another will be restored. We will live in relationship without sin. And creation will be restored. You and I will be able to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever and ever. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about the promise that a Redeemer is coming. And when that Redeemer comes, He will crush the head of our enemy. And one day, someday, everything that is wrong in this world will be made right. There'll be no more sickness and suffering. There'll be no more sorrow and pain. There will be no more death. All of our tears will be wiped away and He will make everything new. That's what Christmas is all about. Oh, dear friend, that's why we can celebrate. We can celebrate because of a promise that was given 
when we were at our darkest, when we were at our worst. So what about you? Where does that leave you? Well, perhaps you're here this morning and and you've never been transformed by Jesus. You've never experienced what it's like to have your sins forgiven. You've never experienced what it's like to have the hope of eternal life, to, to know what it is to have God's Spirit living within you. And if you're here today, And you've never been forgiven. You've never asked for God's forgiveness. And then I want to encourage you today in just a moment to humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your sin, your rebellion. Just like Adam and Eve rebelled, we have rebelled. And acknowledge that. Trust in Jesus to be your Savior. Surrender your life to Him as your Lord. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. But what about those of us who who have already done that? What does this story have to do with us? Well, it lets us know that it ain't over till it's over. And the world that we're now living in with all of this sickness and suffering, all of this pain, all of this this mess, this junk, God's going to make it right. And when He does... It's going to be incredible. And because of that, we can face tomorrow, amen? I mean, because we know that the final page has not yet been experienced, we can live with hope and we can live with peace and we can live with joy in the midst of all this mess. So Christian, why do you fret? Christian, why do you allow this world to overwhelm you? Because we have already won the victory. It's ours. So let's live like it. Now, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to join everybody right now in bowing your head, closing your eyes. I want us all to do that. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, you've never trusted Him to be your Savior, you've never humbled yourself before Him, acknowledging your need, you've never come under the convicting power of His Holy Spirit, then I want to encourage you today to humble yourself and trust Jesus to save you by praying this prayer. You can pray it right here, right now. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning knowing that I am a sinner. Just like Adam and Eve, I've rebelled against you. And my sin has messed things up. I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. Forgive me. This morning, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. I believe you died on the cross, I believe you rose from the grave. So I could have eternal life. I'm giving you my life, Jesus. I want you to take control. I want you to guide me and direct me and lead me. From this moment on, Jesus, I'm yours. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.